Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to This Week in Review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, everything is melting down, crypto, stocks, bonds, it's total carnage out there. I want to ask you, first of all, based on your trading history back in the day, what's some advice, some general advice you've got for people who are, you know, absolutely mortified, terrified of what's going on out there? Well, the first thing to say is that, you know, ever since we started this project of Fortune and Freedom and linked, of course, with the UK independent wealth, we have been very, very cautious, you know, very, very cautious, even on crypto, which we've said is is something that is getting widespread acceptance, is being used more and more. But all the urgings from us from the very beginning, from when it was down at a low level to a very high level and back down again, would do not put very much into it. So... There is a a lesson from all of this, that if you put all your investment eggs in one basket, you are basically gambling and you should really be at Royal Ascot this week um, and not following what we do. Um, I think the one thing we really did get right above all was to say, do not invest in tech. You know, we realised that was grossly overvalued uh, and I'm very, very pleased that we gave that advice. You know, the crypto, we've obviously had a major failure at Luna. Uh, turned out to be basically a fraudulent project. Ethereum has had a disappointment, which is there was supposedly going to be a massive upgrade, which would have meant transacting using Ethereum would have become dirt cheap and capable of a vast number of transactions. That hasn't happened. So there was a big speculative bubble behind Ethereum, assuming that it would happen. These are volatile markets. Now, either you believe, uh, as I do, that crypto is here to stay, in which case, as we start to get down to these sort of levels, you've got to say, in the longer term, if crypto disappears, well, it disappears, but I really, really doubt that. I suspect many thousands of the smaller coins will simply disappear, rather like the the dot-com crash of 20 years ago. You know, 90% of startups just went bust but a few came through, and you know the names, don't you? Apple, etc., cetera, uh, that have done incredibly well. So I think we'll be down to far fewer coins. I think the really small, illiquid stuff that goes up and down 200% a day uh, will just disappear. Uh, but I think for the longer term, this stuff's getting very, very cheap. And that's kind of trading, isn't it, really? You buy when... I, I think Warren Buffett summed it up the best. He said, when the market gets greedy, I get nervous. When the market gets nervous, I get greedy. Uh, And and that from somebody who's been the great long-term investor. But if you're asking me, you know, where's the next $2,000 on Bitcoin? Well, just spin a coin. I've absolutely no idea whether the bottom is here, whether it's 15,000. I haven't got a clue. And frankly, I don't think anybody has. Uh, More broadly, look, you know, falling stock markets, even rapidly falling stock markets, even protracted bear markets still have stocks that are good companies with low debt levels that produce a product that consumers actually buy and that pay dividends. And all the lessons from the great bear markets we've seen over the last 50 years are that actually, after the initial panic, the really good stocks go up because there is a flight to quality. You know, in a bear market, cash is king, said the famous Jim Slater. Back in the 1974-5 bear market, uh, meaning companies that have cash 
and, and produce real products are where the money goes. So there will be great opportunities here too. What about the property market? Is that next on the chopping block? It's a funny one. I mean, clearly the upper reaches of the property market will be affected by uh, slightly less Russian money uh, coming into London and elsewhere. Um, you know, it makes sense that we see a correction in the property market after all that's happened. And yet, the British population is rising by half a million every year. We have a chronic shortage of housing stock as against population growth. I could go into the political reasons for population growth, but maybe not now. Um, and so I actually think that the lower ends of the property market in this country, yes, rising interest rates, we've seen what the Fed have done, um, uh, all of that will dampen the property market. But do I really think that from your middle value house down to the lower end of the market, there'll be a dramatic fall? No. And I would have thought if it falls 20%, probably a very good time to buy property at the cheaper end. Top end, who's to say? You know, a house in Kensington that's 25 million quid, you know, that could easily fall 10 million quid, but it's not going to affect 99.999% of the population. So I, I just don't think, I mean, I, you know, I'm very conscious, I'm very conscious that negative equity did happen 30 years ago. And I'm very worried by the government's proposal that those of you out there that are working should pay taxes so that, so that some of that tax goes to pay benefits to people who then get mortgages with those benefits. I mean, if that's not a recipe for a subprime disaster, I don't know what is. But the reason I don't think it'll overly impact the market is like almost everything else Boris Johnson's government proposes, it never actually happens anyway. One of the tough challenges right now out there is that usually during a crash, bonds perform well, and yet they're performing extremely badly because of inflation. And then usually during inflationary periods, property is not such a bad investment because it tends to go up with inflation. And yet property is so overvalued that that's not necessarily a safe haven either. So we've sort of run out of safe havens. And I think that's what's especially challenging for people right now. Let's move on to what I'm calling the blame game, because I think all of this is reaching a point where the public and to some extent politicians are looking for someone to blame and they've got central bankers as the perfect villain because they failed so badly. What are the investment and the political implications of this? Because the central banks have, are the ones who've been you know, trying to keep markets afloat all this time and trying to keep governments funded. Well, look, the Fed and the Bank of England have both had this catastrophically wrong. You know, I mean, until a few short months ago, they were saying that any inflation would be transitory. Now they're ramping rates and they're flapping and they're panicking. Interestingly, from a UK political perspective, um, Johnson now blames lefty lawyers because we can't deport people who come across the English Channel. And increasingly, you're going to see Andrew Bailey taking stick, 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 the governor of the Bank of England. It's not our fault, Gov. It's the independent central bank that got it all wrong. Don't blame us. And Labour are virtually mute on the subject. I mean, they have nothing to say whatsoever. Uh, so, yes, I think there is a blame game. And we will have a debate about the independence of a central bank. Is it really independent? Has it actually worked? Um, and that debate will come. And I, America's different. I mean, I, I mean, Trump was very critical of the Fed when he was in office. Uh, Biden uh, just has nothing to say on this subject whatsoever. Um, but one of the comments that you know you've made is is that banks like 
you know, the British Central Bank, the American Central Bank, are not that worried about putting interest rates up. I mean, not putting them up too much, but not that worried because they still feel they can get US bonds away. The US government's confident that it can get gilts away. Um, it's what's happening in Europe that is perhaps potentially more interesting. Now, we don't yet know what's going to happen in the French Assembly elections. They get relegated down the news agenda. But it was very interesting last Sunday in the first round that Macron and Jean-Luc Mélenchon were pretty much neck and neck. Now, if Mélenchon comes through this Sunday's elections as the next French prime minister, then I think you then would start to see uh, European governments um, really getting quite worried about issuing euro-denominated debt. Um, so I'm not yet going to say that we're into the next euro crisis, but I do think we need to keep a very close eye on it. A few years ago, a friend of mine, Boaz Shoshan, pointed out that there was a divide between the English-speaking nations which had positive nominal interest rates, that had interest rates above zero. And then there was sort of the rest, like the ECB and the Bank of Japan, which actually had negative or 0% interest rates. That division is getting even bigger now with central banks that are English-speaking, and that's obviously a simplification, but nevertheless, yeah. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the US, the UK, and so on and so forth. They are looking very hawkishly at inflation and raising interest rates extremely fast, whereas the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank are, are not, or they're focusing on sovereign debt risk more so than inflation still. Who's got it right and what does that divergence mean for financial markets? Where would you oh, rather invest? Well, well, I mean, I think that the rising of interest rates and perhaps demand dropping um, will help those English-speaking central banks, as you call them, to get inflation under control more quickly than the European uh, countries in particular, who I don't think feel they have the arrows in their quiver to deal with the problem. So I, I, but I'm with you. And I think actually, economically, um, you know, the post-Brexit, economically, I think the divergence between the UK and the EU is getting bigger every day. Do you think central banks can can continue to pretend that they're independent and stick to their guns on raising interest wow. rates when there's a recession and when unemployment goes up and there's trouble in the bond markets, the governments are struggling to finance themselves? Are they really that, that I guess, that independent? It is quite likely, isn't it, that as we put rates up and as the economy slows into recession later this year, which is, I think, very likely, that the central banks will be told, you didn't put rates up when you should have done because you didn't see inflation coming, and now you've put rates up and forced us into recession. Yes, we're back to the blame game. Uh, are they really independent? Not very. I don't think people will be saying that with a smirk on their face, though, Nigel. I think there'll be a burning central bankers in effigy, but uh, as they did not so long ago, well, actually. You may, Nick, you may be right. You may be right. And, 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 and what is very clear in this country is the inability of Andrew out to lunch Bailey to defend himself in the public court. He's just not up to scratch. Yeah, the Australian Reserve Bank governor recently tried to, and uh, it didn't go so well. Um, he, uh, yeah, he had promised borrowers effectively that he wouldn't raise interest rates until 2024. And very shortly afterwards, he raised rates. And very shortly after that, he raised rates by a half, a, half a percent, which was massive in Australian uh, terms. But let's move on to a piece of news that made me laugh out loud, which is a record exports to the EU. Can you take us through the figure? And, and what's oh, I, I think it must be an error. I, I, I can't believe it's possibly true. Um, 
we've consigned ourselves to being an economic backwater. Uh, we're gonna be a third world country. Um, we're going to lose our jobs and our houses and be thousands of pounds in debt, catch all sorts of terrible infectious diseases. And um, there is no future. It's over. We're done. We're finished. We're washed up. Uh, yeah, these figures were encouraging. And, and, and it's odd, isn't it? It's odd that when you get a little piece of quite good news, hardly anybody hears about it. And that fits in, actually, with a very interesting social attitude survey that's out overnight about mainstream media and how fewer and fewer people in the country are watching mainstream television, listening to mainstream radio, reading newspapers, either physically or online. Uh, there is a real distrust of what mainstream media is putting out. And I think part of that is the unending negativity with nobody ever really trying to say, well, here's a possible solution. Um, and, and I think perhaps these figures and the fact they've had so little salience uh, fits very neatly into that pattern. I think it's because the solutions are not very politically correct, but uh, that's, that's for another video. Nigel, thanks very much for joining us and everyone at home, thanks for watching.